welcome everyone to this opening session of Arise Festival. I can see hundreds of you joining us on Facebook and other streams and also hundreds of you now in the Zoom webinar. Apologies for the uh, last minute, 45 minute delay to the start of this year's Arise Festival. It's due to um, some changes in the parliamentary business and timetable today. And because what we have today is two comrades in in-depth conversation, obviously one of them was unable to make it. It would have been a difficult event. So thank you for everyone for enabling us to rearrange it such short notice and everyone for coming online. Um, I don't have much to say other than to formally welcome you to Arise Festival 2022. We've got over 30 events taking place over the next month. Um, and if you grab yourself a ticket for the whole festival and look at the links in the chat, you can get more informed on that. And please do support us throughout the whole month, including a very special event with Jeremy Corbyn, which we'll be all posted about in the chat next Monday. Without any further ado, I'll hand over to Jess Barnard and Richard Bergen. Thank you, everyone. Good evening, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to see so many of you joining already. Uh, my name is Jess Barnard. I'm the chair of Young Labour and candidate standing in the upcoming NEC elections. I can see loads of people joining, people from Luton, Hull, Edinburgh, Oxford, Bristol. Keep telling us where you're from and yeah, keep, keep interacting on the chat throughout uh, today's session. It's great to see so many of you. I'm really excited to introduce the one and only Richard Bergen MP who is joining us tonight as well. Hey Richard. Hi Jess, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. I am confined to my house with suspected COVID uh, mm, in a yeah. COVID household unfortunately but made, made better knowing I can chat with comrades tonight. Good stuff and how's Norwich? I'm currently in London, um, but Norwich is doing good. Norwich is good. It's a beautiful place. If anyone hasn't been to Norwich, check it out. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm going to kick us off. This feels like the opening of a, of a festival. I feel like the uh, opening stage act <laughs> of the midday when we're all quite fresh. Um, I haven't been to a festival in a while. Richard, what's your favourite festival? Well, I was at a festival. I, I was at two festivals recently. Uh, I was at um, Download the other week where I went to see Iron Maiden and Megadeth and Mastodon, all the bands being with M's, and that was really good. And then I was at a hardcore festival called Outbreak Fest in Manchester just for the Friday night last week. And what you had to do there, believe it or not, you had to sign a disclaimer to get into the front half of the audience because they had no stage barriers at all. And wow. therefore, people encourage us to jump off the stage. So to get into that area, you had to basically sign to say that you accepted all the risks that came uh, with that and that you wouldn't be suing them. It was the only way they could get insurance, apparently, to have no barriers. So that was really good. Wow. Well, we'll be seeing videos of you jumping off the stage into the crowd. No, no. <laughs> I didn't do any stage diving. I'm far too old for that. And I wouldn't like to give my right-wing enemies the satisfaction of me being taken out of action for a week with a kind of broken leg from a gig or something. That's it's true. A fantastic we need festival. you. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, um, we're going to have to kick off because we, we have a relatively short session tonight, about, about 45 minutes. Um, if you would like to ask a question, please do start popping them in the chat. Um, but first of all, I've got some that I prepared earlier. So if you're ready, Richard, we will kick off. Certainly am. 
So obviously there's a lot going on in the news at the moment. Um, we're seeing a huge amount of talk about cost of living crisis, um, but uh, you know, lot, lots more obviously environmental crisis, uh, crisis of, of trust in politicians. Could you talk us through like the current crisis, what you think is going on and, and how the Tories are responding to that? Yeah, well, I think there's a huge cost of living emergency and it's um, true to say it's the, the biggest attack on the living standards of our communities uh, in living memory. And what's fantastic is that the trade union movement are really uh, responding to that. And I think we've seen that obviously most clearly uh, with the three days of RMT action the other week. But I've been on plenty of picket lines and the atmosphere is different. Uh, when I was in Wakefield campaigning for the party in the by-election, I made sure to pop along to the uh, Arriva bus workers picket line there where the bus drivers are on strike because they want £13.40 an hour. Now, a lot of people will be surprised that the bus drivers don't get £13.40 an hour or more already. Then the other week, I attended a really uh, lively rally outside Leeds University where Unison members who were um, porters, cleaners, librarians and technical staff at the university uh, are on strike there because since 2010, They've had a 25% real terms cuts in their uh, in their wages. And then, of course, the uh, the national RMT strike as well. I think it's really interesting to see how the public have responded to that. The opinion, opinion poll that came out today showed that, in fact, across the three days of strike action, public support for the RMT strike action has gone up, which shows what you can do when you show leadership and you really uh, make the case. And I think people understand it, don't they? Because people... Uh, are feeling it in the pocket and at the same time the billionaire class are enriching themselves in a really grotesque way so that's the the situation at the moment and at the end of the day people aren't going to take it lying down you know we want to get the Tories out we want to get Labour governments but people are suffering real terms pay cuts now attacks uh, on their terms and conditions and living standards now so people are going to fight back now and that's why it's important that we support them so that's the period in which uh, we're moving at the moment and of course it's clearer than ever before that there's a climate crisis and at the same time we're seeing uh, the the Tories intensify their moves against any kind of resistance this session talks about resistance doesn't it look they um, confiscated the amp of Steve Bray now Steve Bray if you've seen him or heard him it can be I suppose quite annoying but he plays the Sex Pistols, he plays uh, various other bands that I think are quite good uh, outside my um, office window here but the idea that on the day that the anti-protest laws came in that the police made a beeline for him to confiscate his um, kind of sound equipment and you have a Tory MP saying he's been engaging in violent protests is absolutely chilling really and then the government are talking about bringing further anti-trade union legislation in. So we know what's going on, don't we? People are resisting and the government wants to stop them being able to resist. I think that's really interesting how the Tories are desperately trying to kind of keep control of the narrative as well around some of these things. I'm sure everybody on the call has seen, you know, Mick Lynch doing uh, some of the press interviews last week 
and just being able to cut through some of that nonsense that we hear from, uh, you know, kind of right wing media or conservative MPs who are kind of determined to tell working class people, you know, you don't deserve uh, a pay rise and times are tough. So you need to put up with this and seeing them just kind of put, you know, tear that tear that argument to shreds. Um, you know, what, what do you think people on this call could do to support some of those fight backs? You know, what can we be doing to engage in some of that resistance? Well, I think the place of socialists is in every single struggle, whether that be in Parliament, in the CLP, in the local Labour Party, on the picket line or at the protest. It's not a choice between one or the other. But what seems key to, be, to me at the moment, uh, as well as uh, working for the kind of policies we need in the Labour Party, we need to be visiting picket lines to show our support. We need to be attending protests by social movements, whether it be for uh, women's rights, uh, against racism, uh, or calling for action uh, to uh, try and halt or hold back at the worst of climate catastrophe. We need to, as a left, be involved in every single struggle. And people need to remember that when Parliament does do good things, whether that's under a Labour government or whether it's a Tory government forced to do things by social movements, Parliament's usually the last place uh, that uh, gets with uh, the real picture. Most of the fantastic things that have happened in our society haven't been dreamt by somebody in an office in Parliament and then enacted uh, in isolation from wider society. They've been forced upon Parliament by the trade union movements, by women's movements, by anti-racist movements, by mass movements. So I think it's crucially important that we're part of a mass movement. And I don't buy this idea that politics only happens in Parliament. Anybody who thinks that needs to read a few more history books. Uh, and reflect upon the history in our society of the suffragettes, of the levellers, of the trade union uh, movements, of civil rights campaigners, of anti-racist campaigners, and we need to be involved supporting those campaigns. That's absolutely vital, and I see the left in Parliament, just to digress as a second, as being the buckle between those movements outside Parliament and what goes on in Parliament. And when Tony Benn founded the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs, that's very much what he intended uh, it to be. And we try uh, and do that and we try and uh, follow uh, in the purpose that Tony Benn, Dennis Skinner, Joan Maynard and others uh, set up when they set up the group in 1982. Absolutely. And it, it's, you know, called the struggle for a reason. I think it can feel disheartening at times when it feels like we're being attacked in every in every way possible um and i think obviously the last couple of years we've been a little bit divided haven't we and i think the left has missed those chances where we used to come together and work out strategy forwards and how we could build power and how we could resist um and so hearing from you that you know that that we need to be organizing that fight and that that fight is still ongoing is it's really important i also think it's really important that uh, you and others have stepped up to the plate to stand for the nec you know, contrary to popular rumour, it's not a glamorous role being on the National Executive Committee uh, of the Labour Party. It's really important that you're going to do that. You're in a fantastic job chairing Young Labour through very turbulent times. I mean, I'll never forget that Young Labour meeting at the party conference last year, one of the best fringe meetings I ever, ever attended for its uh, spirit of defiance and socialism and also its uncompromising internationalism as well. And so at the end of the day, when I went into that room and saw all those young people attending a meeting that apparently some people didn't want to go ahead, I thought to myself, a few years ago, there would have never been a young Labour meeting like that, as vibrant, as left-wing, 
as anti-establishment. And that, I think we should take courage from that and see, even though things in the party aren't going the way of the left at the moment, things can change. And we are being attacked. We are being kicked about. But, I mean, if somebody had told me that, I, I mean, I got elected in 2015, um, you know, Ed Miliband was our leader. And if somebody had told me on that night that I got elected and the Labour Party sadly lost the election, that we'd have a left-wing leader in a few months. And I thought, that sounds fantastic, but I don't quite believe it. And if someone had told me that left-wing leader is going to be called Jeremy Corbyn, I wouldn't have believed it. And lots of people now, and I get it, everyone likes to be wise in hindsight to show that they were the great prophets of socialism and knew all along that this was going to happen. I can tell you now, hardly anybody, including Jeremy himself, thought he was going to win that leadership election. Events change things. I remember the, the welfare bill votes, where we were told not to vote against the Tory welfare bill that would hurt people in my constituency and constituencies across the country. 48 of us voted against it in any case, and I thought that was a turning point. I also think that last week's been a turning point uh, when there was all this in the media about how apparently Labour MPs aren't meant to go to picket lines. Lots of Labour MPs did go to picket lines. And that made an impact, not just on the left, but more widely, because our party was founded by the trade unions. We exist to support working class people uh, in struggle who are being attacked by a Tory government and being attacked by their unscrupulous bad bosses. So things can change. I understand how people feel. But just on a final note, because I'm sure we'll return to the subject of international politics uh, later, I was with a couple of politicians from uh, the PT, the Workers' Party in Brazil earlier today. When you think of the struggles they've been through, Lula, who was put in jail on trumped-up charges because he was going to win the last presidential election, is now out. The world recognises those charges as an absolute abhorrence against natural justice. And he's on course to become president of Brazil, one of the biggest economies in the world, in just a few months. And so we consider what's happened to trade unionists in Colombia and the left of one in Colombia. We consider what happens in Brazil and elsewhere. And I just take heart from that. So I know it might be easier for me to say so because I get to do politics for a living, being an MP and very handsomely remunerated for it. Uh, but I think we all need to stick together and stick with it. And of course, we're going to get attacked by the establishment. But the history of the movement in our society and around the world shows that if we endure, we actually can win great victories. And history can change, often for the better, very quickly. And we need to be part of that change. Absolutely. I couldn't have, I couldn't have put it better. I think um, something we've really recognised is, is one of the reasons that kind of anti-socialists really tried to obstruct a lot of the work that we tried to do in Young Labour is because they recognised the the value in, in socialists coming together and talking about these issues and getting speakers like yourself, getting speakers that are out, um, you know, campaigning, getting speakers who are literally you know, organisers in their communities, getting them sharing their stories inspires people to go out and fight for change, to get organised and to dedicate their time to these struggles. Um, and I think that they understand, you know, how powerful that can be, which is why we are so passionate about bringing young people together, making sure they have their spaces in the Labour Party, uh, you know, to hear for, hear those stories, to share their own um, and to, to make those connections so that we don't feel so isolated because it is extremely isolating, you know, being a, 
um, young person, perhaps in like rural parts of the country, experiencing cost of living crisis, worried about their future, worried about the environment, um, and, you know, with nowhere to turn with those politics and no real representation in, you know, in the mainstream uh, political sphere. So it's so important that we build build those spaces moving forwards. Oh, de um, definitely. And you're totally right that um, uh, the right, uh, wherever it's found, uh, is keen, isn't it, to stop good examples as we see it happening because they inspire other people. And that's why the Tory government are so determined to crush the RMT strike because they know when workers see railway uh, cleaners, safety operatives and people working ticket offices on uh, you know very modest wages, fighting back against real terms pay cuts, fighting back to keep the jobs, people think if they win, do you know what? Workers can win. We'll do it too. And that's why the government's so determined to uh, crush them. And you see that in international politics as well. You know, that's why uh, the forces of the establishment in the United States are always keen or have been keen historically to crush progressive governments in Latin America, for example, because they're worried that if it works, uh, then other people might think, do you know what? We should try that too in our own way. So the idea of the bad good example as the establishment sees it is very powerful. Absolutely. Something we hear quite a lot, um, and I've heard a few times, is people saying, well, I'm paid less than than that worker. Why, why should they be on strike, but not me? Why should they be paid more, but not me? What would you, what argument would you give to people who are kind of facing people saying that? What would you equip them with to, to take out? What message would you give to them? But I remember once visiting a care home in a general election a few years ago uh, and I went to give uh, a kind of talk as a candidate to the old people in this care home and I was talking about our policies um, and I was talking about you know £10 an hour minimum wage uh, at the time you know, it was a, a few general elections back and I will always remember one of the care home staff putting a hand up uh, and saying how will the bosses of the care home afford £10 an hour it's too much and my polite response, because uh, I understand where people get this, these ideas from, because it's pushed onto them by the right-wing press and by right-wing politicians that, uh, that a decent uh, wage is somehow too much to ask uh, in one of the biggest and richest economies uh, in the world. But I made the point that she seemed to be worrying about how her very wealthy bosses would get by. They didn't seem to worry very much about how she would get by and pay her bills. Uh, and I, but, I, but it reminded me how the right-wing media uh, do such a good job in persuading people to pick up ideas that are against their own interests. I think Aaron Bevan talked about this when he talked about conservative politics in his book, In Place of Fear, uh, written, I think, in 1950 or something. He said, the art of conservative politics in the 20th century, the art of persuading the non-privileged majority to vote in the interests of the privileged minority. And of course, as in the 20th century, so in the 21st century. But that's why it's encouraged me so much that the RMT has won uh, the case with the public so far, because the way our railways run uh, is obviously very complicated. There's this procedure, there's that procedure. Uh, there's all sorts of things which I, as somebody who's not a specialist on the railways, wouldn't understand. So it's easy for people to get confused and for right-wing forces to take advantage of the complicated nature of the way the industry works. But the RMT has cut to the chase, talked about the actual wages that their workers are on, 
and most are on between uh, 25 and 30,000 pounds a year. And they've been winning the arguments. And that's really uh, important. When I've been on the picket lines with the RMT, the vast majority of people coming past were very supportive because people understand. I think most people do think now that enough is enough. And more and more people recognise the reality that whatever these right-wing newspapers and right-wing politicians say, we shouldn't have a problem with another worker who might earn uh, a couple of thousand pounds more than us. We should have a problem with the billionaires who are paying uh, nowhere near like the tax they're meant to, have increased their wealth in a grotesque way, uh, and are basically doing very well out of things. So ultimately, we've got to make the case of the politics of the 99% and make the case that when workers take action to win, actually, it becomes the rising tide that lifts all boats. I was pleased to see that without taking strike action or even threatening it, I believe, that um, PricewaterhouseCooper uh, workers, 20,000 of them, are being offered 9% in order to offset uh, the cost of living increase through uh, inflation. So that's good. Let's apply that to uh, other industries uh, as well. I'm pleased to see them get that, by the way, because those workers will include workers who aren't paid too much. It includes a lot of ordinary workers. But it just shows it just shows it can be done. Absolutely, it can be done. There's there's been so many stories um, I've I've heard over the past couple of weeks of people joining trade unions or messaging to ask about how to join a trade union because they've been inspired by the the actions, the solidarity. Um, and I guess the way that, you know, RMT workers have, have stood up for each other, you know, these are workers doing lots of different jobs on a, a broad range of pay, making sure that they take action to stand up for each other in a cost of living crisis. I think that's really something we can take heart from that solidarity. But the anti-trade union bile from the Tories, the, the, the two debates since I got into Parliament in 2015, where I've seen the Tories most red faced and angry and outrageous, was one, the debate the other week on this silly motion that the Tories had brought against the RMT strike. Uh, and then a few years ago, there was, a, there was a debate on the anniversary of the miners' strike. And obviously it's very important to you and me uh, and others in the movement, but it's a long time ago. And these Tories, you think, it'd be, you think it was happening now, the way they were going on, they were so angry, so vitriolic. But I think it goes to show, because in politics you can be judged, and in life, not only by your friends, but by your enemies as well. There's a reason that the Tories get so angry and red-faced and vitriolic and are so drenched in spittle when they're talking about trade unionists taking action either now or in the past. And that's because they know that trade unions are effective weapons against the class warfare that the billionaire class and their Tory friends wage against the majority of people in our society. The Tories are so class-conscious they see it straight away. So I think it's important that we see it as well. The Tories see it, we need to see it as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Richard. Um, before we go to our next questions, we've got a quick announcement from Sam from Arise, and then we will be coming to uh, the questions that have been submitted throughout we've, the time we've been talking. So do keep sending your questions in, we're going to be coming to those next, but first of all, we'll hand over to Sam. Yeah, hello everyone. Uh, my name's Sam. I'm a volunteer with Arise Festival and I just want to take the opportunity to say thanks for coming to the fantastic discussion today and also welcome to the festival. Um, and what a time for it to happen, eh? At the same time as Mick Lynch has been doing a tour de force of the uh, television studios to real like drum up support for the RMT who are smashing out of the park. CWU are coming out and we've also seen a deportation flight stopped by People Power as well. 
Um, so it's a phenomenal time for the festival to going on. And as Jess said, um, it's, it, there's a real value in bringing people uh, together. And um, for that reason, I really encourage you to go to our Eventbrite page and check out all the events that are happening um, as part of the festival. You'll see on the Eventbrite page too, uh, when you take a look at that, and I think someone will probably post it in the chat as I'm talking, um, there's a note on tickets. So whilst all our online events um, are gonna be streamed for free, as a volunteer organisation, I'm a volunteer, everyone helping out on this call is a volunteer. We're selling an initial batch of tickets um, to register for the entire festival in order to meet the kind of digital infrastructure costs that it takes to do something like this and to run such an ambitious project. So I'd really encourage you uh, to get, um, get to the Eventbrite page and, um, and check, out, um, check out what's going on and, uh, and get yourself a ticket. Um, because it is an ambitious project. Um, like I say, we've got a dizzying array of events coming up over the next month. We run all the way through um, July. Uh, I just want to flag our next big live event is with Jeremy Corbyn. Um, it's called Building Global Movements for Peace, People and Planet. And that's on Monday. And he's going to be joined by Yanis Varoufakis and representatives from D-Linka. Um, the International Transport Workers Federation in Argentina, um, the Third World Solidarity Network, the Progressive International, and representatives from Jean-Luc Mélenchon's um, Electoral Coalition in France. That's going to be a phenomenal meeting. Um, it's going to bring, bring together some real big hitters on the international stage. So um, I, can, I hope you can make that. And like I say, check out the other events on Eventbrite. Um, the final thing I wanted to say to you was please do donate as well. We've got, um, there'll be a link posted in the chat. As I said, we're a volunteer-run organisation. Everything we done, everything we do, is um, done on a voluntary basis. We're all about boosting the struggle and uh, and, and and the struggle of everyone who's fighting against this sort of rotten Tory government uh, for a better world. Um, so yeah, we, we can we can do that even better when we all come together. Um, so please donate. Um, there'll be a link in the chat, like I say. So that's three things. Check out tickets on the Eventbrite page. Check out all the events on the Eventbrite page too, um, and register for things. Second thing is join us on Monday for that event with Jeremy Corbyn um, on global movements for peace, people and planet. And finally, that third thing, please donate because that's how we survive as an organisation um, and how we put on fantastic events like this. Hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. Hope you enjoy the rest of the festival and I hope you enjoy the summer, a struggle that we've got ahead of us too. Um, I'll see you at other events, I am sure. And thanks very much, Jess, for letting me do my plug. Thanks so much, Sam. You heard him. Get your tickets. Make sure you donate. And he reminded me to get my ticket as well. So I'll do that straight after this. Um, next up, we're going to come to, I guess, a couple of juicy questions that you've sent in. Um, I know it's kind of one of the things on everyone's minds. We don't, we don't like to dwell on it, but it, it's something we do talk about. Um, you know, obviously, there's been a lot of, of, of tension. There's been a lot of attacks on the left, and that can feel... Uh, you know, demoralizing at times. I guess particularly something that's on people's minds and um, Felicity has asked, will Labour's socialist group of MPs continue attending picket lines, which is obviously in reference to uh, the comments by the leadership that, that, that Labour MPs shouldn't be on picket lines. Uh, what would you say to that one? Of course, there's nothing that anybody could say to stop me uh, going on a picket line to speak to my constituents and support them when their wages and terms and conditions are under attack. And by the way, this isn't a left position. This is a Labour position. Our party was founded by the trade unions. I'm sure Keir Hardy, when he set up the Labour Party, couldn't imagine a situation where a Labour Party in the future uh, would be in any way 
making out that it's uh, not the done thing for a Labour MP to uh, visit uh, picket lines and show support uh, to those workers. I mean, we've seen, you know, through Labour's history, sadly, leaders not always supporting strikes. But I think this is the first time I've seen uh, edicts kind of issued uh, discouraging people from going uh, to picket lines, as was uh, reported in relation to uh, front benches. But I'll be going to uh, picket lines. Uh, no one's told me not to, and even if they did, I'd feel duty-bound to go uh, in any event. And I think it was good that uh, Labour MPs uh, went to uh, uh, went to picket lines. I think it's, uh, that's important. It's part of who we are, isn't it? A trade union-founded uh, party, a party that exists to be the voice of working-class communities, of workers, under the 99% in Parliament. Our place is in Parliament, on the picket line, at the protest, backing up the social movements. That's where we uh, need to be. That's where we need to be. Absolutely, that's good to hear. And likewise, I'm sure many people on this call probably went along to the picket lines. Um, and there, there are going to be many more, I'm sure, over the summer. So do make sure you get along and support. And shout out to the, the 50 uh, Labour MPs who attended the RMT picket lines over the last couple of weeks, uh, despite the um, orders from, from above not to. Uh, I think so, you know, I agree with you. It's so important. This is absolutely who we are. And we need many, many more trade unionists representing workers in Parliament. Um, so we'll come to our next one. So how, this one's from Carolyn, how do you see the way forward to ensure that nothing like what's happened regarding Mr Johnson's behaviour and his refusal to resign and reneging on his promises ever happens again once we have rid of him? Well, it's a good question. I think key to this is understanding that whilst we want to get rid of Johnson, that's not enough. And my fear is that what is going to happen is when the Tories dump him, if they manage to dump him before the next general election, if they replace him with someone who appears reasonable, then what we could have is what happened when Thatcher was uh, booted out uh, in 1990. She was replaced by John Major, and it gave people an excuse to give him a chance and vote Tory. And so the Tories then won the 1992 general election. And that's why I think um, is one of the reasons that we need to have policies. We need to have a vision to inspire we need to have a set of policies that people can look at and think, I understand those. And what they're going to do is they're going to defend and lift my standard of living uh, and the standard of public services in my community. We can't rely upon Johnson being unpopular to win a general election. We can't rely upon Tory implosion. We need to make sure there's Labour inspiration as well. So let's have a pledge card with six policies on it. And just off the top of my head, they could include things like a wealth tax, free university tuition, £15 an hour minimum wage, banning zero hours contracts, ending all privatisation in national health service and national care service. See, I've got more than I need already for a pledge card at least. But Your struggle with just six. Yeah, we, we, need, <laughs> we need to look at the 2017 manifesto, for example, because it seemed to me to be rather politically perverse when we're looking at how we can win the next general election. Obviously, we need to recognise we got smashed in 2019 in what became a Brexit election. But it seemed very odd. It would seem an act of masochism by the leadership of the Labour Party not to examine in any way 
what went right and yes, what went wrong in 2017, given it was the only electoral advance for our party in a general election for 20 years, it would seem strange for kind of ideological or sectarian reasons or factional reasons to say, let's pretend that 2017 never existed. Those policies struck a chord with people because people knew that they would change their lives for the better. And it's only when Labour's done that, as we did in 1945, as we did under Harold Wilson, and yes, as we did in 1997, it's only when Labour's done that that we've managed to win general elections. But I think we'll win a general election based upon policy. And of course, it's the conference of the Labour Party that decides policy. So I'm pleased that our policy is a £15 an hour minimum wage because the last conference backed it. I'm, free that our, I'm, I'm pleased that our party policy is to scrap tuition fees and a whole host of other things as well. Absolutely. We're getting so many questions about how we can, I guess, hold uh, leaders to account. I guess in particular, mention of Keir Starmer, um, when we've seen is him withdrawing his uh, support for the pledges, the you know, pledges that he put forward. Um, what what can we do to convince him to, or you know, others others in the leadership as well to keep the the policies that we know were so popular? And how how can we organise to make sure that they are still, uh, you know, still being talked about and still being put forward as a solution to some of the crises we face? Well. A left leader was elected as leader of the Labour Party back in March 2020 because the programme that Keir Starmer put forward was a left programme. He basically pledged to keep the economics of Jeremy's time as leader of the Labour Party, so in other words, the economics of John McDonnell, uh, and uh, have an operation that would win a general election. And that hasn't been what's happened. In Keir Starmer's own words, things have changed. I think that's uh, a big mistake on a number uh, of levels. I don't think that approach will necessarily win as a general election. But I think we need to ensure that the support for those transformative, bread and butter, very reasonable policies is articulated in our constituency Labour parties, but also that we build support for these policies in wider society. And that's why I don't think it's a choice to the left between being involved in the Labour Party or the trade unions, in the Labour Party or the social movements. The place, as I say, for socialists is in every single struggle. And most places in our society are contested spaces. Even the trade union movement isn't a homogenous whole. People sometimes make the mistake of just referring to the trade unions as if they all have the same political and industrial outlook. In most trade unions, there's a debate that goes on all the time between a kind of fighting approach to trade unionism uh, and a more service model approach to trade unionism. And sometimes the leadership of unions changes from year to year. So we need to be involved in these debates. We need to be involved in organisation in all these uh, spheres. But the best way to get the Labour Party leadership, in my opinion, to support the kind of progressive policies needed to change society and help us to win a general election and get these awful Tories out is to build a movement which demonstrates that there's big public support for these policies. These aren't fringe policies. You know, this is a mass, mass thing. And I think that's what we need to uh, concentrate upon, uh, in my opinion, because what happens in the Labour Party isn't divorced from what happens in wider society. Both relate to each other. 
I think it was, so it works both ways. Um, for example, we can show that there's uh, big support out there. There's an opinion poll of the week that showed six out of 10 people think that workers don't have enough rights in this country. Well, Labour can show it understands that by keeping with the fantastic portfolio of employment law policies and in workers' rights policies that Andy McDonald oversaw back when he was in the shadow cabinet. But things work the other way around as well. And I found it fascinating that when I, because I joined the Labour Party when Tony Blair uh, was uh, leader, I was only 15, uh, but I was a member of the Labour Party. I was a very normal child, I promise. I joined when I was 16, Richard, so oh, in the same boat. So we're both, we're both unusual in that extent. But what I found fascinating was that in the 2017 general election, it was the only general election where immigration wasn't being raised with me all the time when I was door knocking. When I say all the time, I don't mean on every doorstep, but I mean where immigration wasn't being regularly raised as, to quote, a problem. And the reason for that, I think, was that the Labour Party leadership under Jeremy and with Diane as Home Secretary, Shadow Home Secretary, showed leadership on that. And because we weren't banging on all the time about how we were going to reduce the number of migrants, we weren't banging on all the time about migration being a bad thing. And surprise, surprise, people are taking interest in what the Labour Party is saying. Their heads hadn't been filled with the justification of that view by the political leadership of the party that they generally support, or at least one of the parties that they listen to. And I think that showed to me that it works both ways. What happens in wider society informs the political positions the Labour Party takes, but the political positions the Labour leadership takes also informs what happens in wider society. Um, and I'm sure there's um, a Marxist phrase for this interrelation between the two, that if, if I quoted it, I'd get into trouble with somebody else, so I won't. <laughs> I, I completely, completely agree. There's a really reductive way that we've, we're told that, you know, leadership exists and it's, you know, someone who looks a certain way and conducts themselves in a certain way and fits into this kind of mould, right, that the establishment tells us is, is what's a good leader. But everything you've just described you know, showing leadership on these issues, showing the the boldness to, to go out and, and speak honestly about what the solutions are um, and, and avoid, you know, make sure that we don't buy into this kind of divisive uh, methods that are used to kind of split, split and tear apart communities and kind of bow down to things that, you know, we think people are going to vote for, which often uh, ends up shifting the, the discussion further right and into a more reactive and really dangerous place, actually. And something that really offends me and I you know, represent one of the most economically deprived constituencies in the country. I hate it when Westminster politicians, now I'm a politician in Westminster, but obviously I don't mean myself, I'm criticizing Westminster politicians, uh, is when politicians here and journalists sell the working class in this country so short, the grotesque caricatures of what they think working class people want. And I think it's really insulting, insulting to our working class communities to have this caricature of the kind of um, racist uh, right-wing working class person. I mean, lots of that is just total rubbish. Most people aren't like that. So why do politicians encourage us to behave as if the majority of people in our country are like that? They're not, despite the best efforts of the right-wing press to make more and more racists. Because that's what the right-wing press does. It uses the skills of university educated writers who are schooled in sounding like they're from ordinary backgrounds the way they write 
you know, their job is to make more racists. Their job is to make more right-wingers amongst the working class. But they haven't done that good a job on it because most people in our society have decent views. And the opinion polls uh, show that. So I get a bit sick of these uh, caricatures. The people we represent, people in our communities, are better than some of these right-wing politicians think. And it's about time we stop patronising them by thinking that what they want isn't transformative policies, what they want is a bit of racist rhetoric and lots of other kind of uh, fakery. You know, Alf Garnet doesn't represent the working class in our country. It's about time people understood that. Absolutely, hear, hear to that. That, that kind of brings me to, um, you've touched on it a bit, but is there anything more we can be doing to effectively uh, counter the Tory narrative in media? What more can we be doing? When you say we, do you mean as a party or as a movement? Oh, both. Both. Well, what we need to do to counter the narrative is, for example, make very clear that inflation hasn't been caused by workers having too much money in their pockets. It's a simple truth that needs to be articulated by the leaders of our party and by the leadership of our movement and by mass movement as well. In fact, those at the very top have hoarded wealth. Prices have gone up and that's caused uh, inflation. It's not because workers' wages have gone up. Because how can workers' wages going up have caused uh, inflation when workers' wages haven't gone up? So we need to make that uh, clear. Uh, and by doing so, I think the conclusion becomes very clear, doesn't it? When inflation hasn't been caused by wages going up, it's even easier to choose whose side you're on. We're on the side of workers whose wages are being hit and bills are going up the roof and whose living standards are being hit. So that's one argument we need to make. We need to also make arguments on the basis of principles and morality. You know, yes, the repugnant Rwanda policy that the government's got is rather uh, cost inefficient, but it's bloody wrong. It's morally wrong. It's disgusting. It's abhorrent. And the thing that interests me about the financial aspects of it is it shows to me when they were prepared to fly a plane, even with one person on it, it showed me that there's no price that they will not pay, no expense to, will, to which they will not go in order to push the politics of divide and rule. It's almost a bottomless pit when it comes to that. They can find money for that because even to send one person on a plane furthered in their view or would further the politics of red meat for Tory right-wing backbenchers and people, the small minority in our society who are enamoured with the repugnant ideas of so-called Tommy Robinson. And so we need to make the moral case because socialism is a moral cause. You know, as Tony Benn said, socialism is a flame of anger against injustice and the flame of hope that you can build a better world. And our job is to try and define the finer values in our society, as Tony Benn also said. There's so much decency out there. So let's take the decency in our communities that showed through COVID how working class people in our communities stick by each other, look out for each other, stand by each other, and let's apply that to the way we run the state when we're in government. The Tories have used the state to enrich their super rich mates. Let's use the states when we're in power as a transformative engine 
for the better when it comes to improving the living standards of the 99%, but also changing the balance of power in our society. I don't want to live in a society where the bosses of P&O can treat the workers like shit in the way they did. That's the wrong balance of power. Democracy isn't just about getting to vote at the ballot box. It's about empowering people in the workplace, in their community, in relation to community planning decisions, in relation to what goes on in their workplace or their, the institutions that they're studying in. So let's use the state in that way. Absolutely. It's great to hear you talking about the different ways in which the political spheres, I guess, see how they use the state. We often don't talk very much about how much, the you know, we often say, you know, the conservatives, oh, they don't believe in the state, but they do. Just one that oppresses, one that removes the rights, one that, you know, monitors, one that clamps down on the right to protest, but not the kind of state that we want to see, the one that supports people, the one that, uh, you know, is, is there to provide safety nets, but also, you know, enhance people's lives uh, from, from cradle to grave. So well, it's brilliant to hear you talking about to that. paraphrase someone else I shouldn't quote, and so I'll make it not a very accurate paraphrase deliberately for those watching from the Daily Mail. But the, the, the state basically is a tool of advancing class interests. The morality of that uh, is immaterial. What depends is which classes' interests are you furthering through the use of the state? So the Tories use the state as a kind of way of funneling money from the taxpayer uh, to the billionaire class and corporate interests. And they also use the state to clamp down on the majority taking part in civil society with it through uh, voting, protesting, taking strike action. Because we want to use the state in the interests of the majority of people. It's what the Labour government did in 1945. It's what we want to do again. But the state, you see, is not neutral. There's nothing neutral, really, in our society. Everything is a contested space. And most things uh, can be used either for good uh, or uh, ill, uh, in my opinion. Absolutely. Everything is a contested space. We must be in it to contest it. Um, people want to hear your thoughts about, I guess, you know, you have the... Uh privilege of, of being party to what goes on in Parliament. We've got a couple of questions about um, Parliament's role in a few of the crises we've talked about. So I'm going to just come, I'm going to read out both of them. So first of all, we've had um, from Norman, I agree that not everything good that happens comes through Parliament, but is it not true that some of the crucial things that need doing today to make us a more equal society, such as a wealth tax and worker representation as a right on all company boards of directors, can only come through parliamentary action? And then the second one from Juliet is, why in all of this discourse, including in Parliament and its committees, is there so little reference to the fact that profits should not go to shareholders and directors in the way that they do, and those payouts should surely be, be sent to the workers first to make sure they have decent wages? Norman makes an interesting point, and in essence he's correct in that if you're going to introduce a wealth tax, you have to be introduced by Parliament, but I view democracy as being a bit like a factory production line, and Parliament's the end part of that factory production line. And all the ingredients that come to the final product are added by people further back down the uh, production line. So the demand starts in society, the campaign starts in society, and then eventually Parliament introduces it. And then you get the finished product in law, which is enacted, which is introduced. But even then, there's a role for people uh, in wider society, because just because a law has been passed it doesn't mean the establishment is not going to try and reverse that. 
look in the United States with that repugnant um, verdict on Roe uh, against Wade, see how they're trying to and are uh, rowing back on uh, women's rights. So nothing is ever settled. As Tony Benn said, we need to, you know, fight the same battles uh, again and again. But Parliament's the end point, and that's why we need to win in Parliament. But politics doesn't just take place in Parliament, and Parliament doesn't just uh, act uh, in uh, a vacuum. The second point uh, that another comrade made about profits going to shareholders, yeah, we, we're hearing talk about um, caps on wages and wage restraints. See, the governor of the Bank of England was on about 500 grand a year or more, was calling for wage restraints, saying workers should think again before they even accept a pay rise that's offered. Is that the right thing to accept a pay rise? So we hear a lot of talk about wage restraints. Why don't we hear about profit restraints, price restraints? Why don't we have a cap on profits? Uh, why don't we have a cap on the price of uh, basic uh, essentials? These are the kind of discussions that we need to be having in my views of movement, especially during a cost of living emergency of historic proportions. Absolutely. Complete, I couldn't agree more. And I think hearing, um, if anyone caught the, the Dave uh, Ward interview, I think it was yesterday, was it yesterday? Uh, who's the general secretary of the CWU. Um, he was saying, you know, it's, it's always, it's always the workers who are told now is not the time, or, you know, it's tough right now. You need to, you need to wait. But at the same time, we see the same, the same bosses, the same shareholders of those very companies increasing their profits, increasing their pay year on year. Uh, we don't see them taking a 10% pay cut uh, rarely ever. So it's, it's you know, what, what can we do to keep making those arguments? Can I, uh, oh, what, yeah, there's a question at the end of that, so I was thinking about something else. No, sorry, so go for it. What can we do to keep on uh, making those putting, arguments? Yeah, putting those into the political sphere, you know, standing up for work, workers. Well, we need to be clear on it. I say inflation is not caused by workers' wages being too high. Uh, if now's not the time to support workers in pay claims, when there's a historic cost of living emergency, and when the value of people's wages is going down, then when is the time? The truth is, for those people who run society, it's never the right time for workers to improve their lots. Either workers are getting paid too much, things are too good, so you shouldn't be asking for anything more. Things are too bad, you shouldn't be asking for uh, any more. So I think we need to make those arguments. There was a point I wanted to address. I don't know if somebody's asked this question yet. Sometimes it feels like an elephant in the room in um, left-wing gatherings where people are umming and ahhing about their continued membership of the Labour Party. Has anybody asked anything about that? Uh, a little, no, a little bit, a little good. bit. I mean, oh, a little bit. <laughs> not, not, not ex specifically. I think we've had a couple of people talk about, uh, you know, how what the, what's the left left role in Labour. Well, I, I think it's a point that is useful to consider uh, and uh, and address. And my message to people is: take your rose-tinted glasses off when you're considering the history of the Labour Party. The Labour Party's history, as proud as I am be as I am to be a member of the Labour Party isn't a history of a party that has always covered itself in glory. Let's just leave that uh, there. So this idea that when people get disappointed now with this policy or that policy or this approach or that approach by the current Labour Party leadership, it somehow represents an historical aberration or something that's never happened before, just isn't true when you study the history of our party in the last 122 years. And when I mentioned earlier about things being a contested space, the Labour Party is a contested space. 
the trade unions are a contested space. Both the trade unions and the Labour Party in our country are the creations, the imperfect creations of the working class in Britain. And they're both contested spaces. And so when people are considering what to do as a left person about their Labour Party membership, I'd use this example. Let's imagine in Unite the Union that one of the left candidates hadn't won the leadership election. So let's imagine uh, that uh, Sharon uh, hadn't won. Let's imagine uh, that uh, neither Steve nor Howard had won either. Let's imagine instead that the very right-wing candidates won. Let's imagine that. Would anybody think that it was a sensible approach the day after the victory of uh, Mr. Coyne in this imaginary parallel universe that I've just stepped into? Would anybody imagine it'd be sensible for the left in Unite to sit down the next day and say, well, it's a real shame that the left, one of the left candidates didn't become leader of Unite. The right wingers won instead. What should we do about it? I know, we'll set up a new trade union tomorrow. We've got seven members to start off with, but who knows, in maybe 60 years, we'll have a million members, and then we will supplant Unite as one of the biggest trade unions in the country. The sensible thing to do, and I'm sure what they would have done, was say, let's learn the lessons. Let's make sure that when there's, again, an election for the leader of our trade union, we're in a position so one of the left candidates does win. And in the meantime, let's organise for left policies at the trade union conference and in our trade union branches. And so I think people need to see it in that perspective. But to see it in that perspective, I think, involves looking to the history of the Labour Party and understanding, understanding that the Labour Party's history is not the history of a socialist party, but the history of a party with socialists in it. And once people understand that, then I think they can get their bearings in a better way. I think people also need to understand that if the left that stayed in the party, even when Blair took us into that war in Iraq, when the left that stayed in the party, even during that time, had they not stayed in the party, then further down the line, it wouldn't have been possible to get left candidates selected in winnable seats, and it wouldn't have been possible to have sufficient MPs to get Jeremy on the ballot paper back in 2015. So the unglamorous patient work we do now can have quite dramatic uh, results uh, in the future. And so no one's asking anybody to romanticize the Labour Party uh, or its history or its current state. The Labour Party is an institution, an institution made up of people with different views and different opinions. It's a contested space, just like our trade unions. And we need to remember that in my opinion. So I say, let's work in our Labour Party for a Labour government with no illusions. Brilliant. And I, I do agree. I think as someone who I, I joined under Ed Miliband, um, but the latter part, um, and most of the time that I spent in the Labour Party was under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, which meant that a lot of the causes that I was deeply passionate about were automatically taken up by the leadership 
And, and so in a way, it wasn't too much of a fight to make sure that Labour Party spoke for people like me that spoke up for like working class uh, young people who needed change, who still need change. Um, but th that, that kind of that voice and that support and they were willing to amplify those causes. And in a way, it felt very, very comfortable. And now it's, it's difficult to change sometimes, you know, difficult to adjust to that change where we're in a situation where everything is a, is, is a fight. You know, those, those struggles that we're facing aren't automatically taken up by the leadership. They are, our voices aren't amplified. And the obstruction that we have faced in, in Young Labour and I've faced, um, and I've seen my, you know, colleagues in, on Young Labour's National Committee face, it's, it's been really tough. But I think something we were all agreed on is that, this, as you say, is an imperfect institution, but it is something that we need to engage in a space we need to fight for to make sure that we are putting forward those social solutions. And we can't, exp you know, when, when in the history of our society have working class people just been handed wins, handed power, when have people with power ever given us rights for free just because they felt like it we have to fight for them and that's the only way we have ever won struggles uh, in this country and I would say most others as well. So I would come back to, you know, your phrase today, I think it's really powerful, is contesting spaces. Um, we are going to have to wrap up soon. And I just wanted to say if anyone has been inspired to go and contest a space, whether that is the Labour Party or whether that's joining anti-racist movements, um, whether that is joining a union and tr trying to organise your workplaces, let us know in the Q&A box. It'd be great to hear uh, what you guys are all up to. So I'm going to finish with uh, one last question on a sort of more hopeful note, Richard, uh, what is it that's giving you hope? What keeps you motivated? Um, can you share, share some tips with us? Well, something that keeps me motivated uh, at the moment is the fight back from the trade unions, from the RMT, from uh, Unison Workers, Communication Workers Union, Workers Unite Workers and others. Uh, and what also gives me hope is the fact that the, the public aren't taking the view of these disputes in the way the political establishment would hope they would. But what also gives me hope are the movements around the world, the left movements. In, I went to Colombia a long time ago, back in 2006, when I was a trade union lawyer in Leeds. Uh, and it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a trade unionist. It was a place where leftists had been killed in huge numbers. And I, you know, we went into a prison in Bogota and met trade unionists put in prison for no other reason than being uh, trade unionists. All the experts around the world have said, do you know what, Colombia is the place where there'll never be a left president. There is, there's now a left president as of the other week, but the history that flowed to that included trade unionists and left-wingers being slung in jail, shot, tortured, brutalized. They've got the left-wing presidents, but all the experts said they would never get. We look uh, in Brazil, where Lula, as I say, was slung in jail, the founder of the Workers' Party. I think, Jess, you've met him, haven't you? Uh, I um, And I hope he dedicates his victory to you in October, personally. <laughs> he, he's very impressive, amazing. That. Yeah. So in Brazil, it looks like he's going to win. All the opinion polls put him 20 points ahead of that fascist Bolsonaro. Then you look in Chile, where... It was the birthplace of neoliberalism held in place that grotesque economic experiment in the most brutal form where Allende died and now a left president uh, has uh, won. And so things are happening 
around the world, in, in Bolivia, whereby there was a coup, whereby people were tortured and killed on the left. But there is now a left government in Bolivia again. And these people, I mean, I get some people tweeting nasty stuff at me, but look what happens to left-wing politicians in other countries, you know, with similar politics to yours uh, and mine. And so they can keep on going. I'm sure that I uh, and we can keep on going. So that gives me hope uh, as well. But ultimately, the biggest hope that I get is when I'm out and about, because during the lockdowns, quite rightly, we couldn't be out and about. And so at that time, I think it was easier to get demoralised because we didn't have that social contact uh, with other people in the way that we do now. But going out and about, I meet inspiring people all the time. They're doing fantastic things in their own community, in community groups, in the Labour Party, in trade unions, and in campaigns like uh, Black Lives Matter, in the campaign against the draconian anti-protest laws, in the campaigns for action against climate change. And you see... Um, these people are really the engine of the campaign we need to build uh, a better society. Uh, and that inspires me. That inspires me. Uh, real change is necessary, but I also think it's very achievable because the alternative to that is too hard to uh, contemplate. So I think the left has shown the way in the trade union movements, in parliaments, and in wider society. Let's keep it that way, because to um, quote Jeremy, things can and will change. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for joining us tonight. I know you've had a really long day, so we are going to wrap it up there. But before you go, I just want to give a shout out to um, the organisers for this. An amazing, amazing opening session. And uh, please do get your tickets for the rest of the session. There's loads coming up. I've seen loads advertising in the chat that I've got my eye on. And if you can, please do donate to Arise to support the incredible work that they do in hosting events like this and many, many more. So thank you everyone for coming and I look forward to seeing you at an event in the future. Thank you again, Richard. Thanks, Jess.